Hi, and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I'm here with Wade in his backyard for another Winging It session. Uh, If you haven't uh, followed along this summer in our Winging It series, we're kind of walking through um, more like hopping through uh, church history. And what we're doing is we're using a book by Mark Knoll called Turning Points. And he puts together about 13 turning points, uh, important um, uh, events or things that happened in uh, church history that he thought were uh, pretty substantial, and then uh, things went a different way. Thus the title of the book, Turning Points. This is our fifth one. Uh, We started out with the fall of Jerusalem and how we are now going to be uh, a Gentile and Jewish church, not just a Jewish church, very much more uh, interested in going out from Jerusalem, being forced out of Jerusalem. Um, we skip ahead to 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, um, trying to answer the great big questions of Christology that popped up in the first couple centuries of the church. Uh, and then a little bit later in 451, we got to the Council of Chalcedon, kind of similar, but a little bit more maybe political um, as the church goes uh, um, after Constantine in the so-called imperial uh, era of the church. And then last time we had an interesting one, and I thought it was an interesting one that he pointed out, um, was the rise of monasticism and even called it the monastic rescue of the church. And then Benedict's rule was kind of the subtitle. Today we're going to jump ahead to 800 and AD. And if you took any Western civilization course, you know that uh, date, uh, Christmas Day, when uh, the Pope uh, crowns Charlemagne, Holy Roman Empire, and we're going to talk about that uh, today. So uh, just just kind of a little bit of a background. Um, you have the rise of Islam in the East. You have the Eastern Church maybe um, uh, a, a little bit, now I don't want, jealous is maybe not the right word, but certainly uh, the leaders in the East are a little bit uh, leery of the rising power of the Western bishop, the, the Roman bishop, but they also have their hands full with um, not only the Christological heirs uh, of the centuries before, which maybe are a little bit stronger than in the West, at least uh, at least there was more of a variety out there. And the big fights over echinoclasm. And yep, not only that, but then of course Islam is coming and um, we're in the second century, third, second or third century now of Islam and its conquests in the southern and eastern Mediterranean and even getting up into, into Spain. And so that's all going to play a part of the decision of uh, the Pope to crown Charlemagne on Christmas Day in Rome, 800 AD. I'll kick it to you, Wade, and you can kind of uh, give your initial thoughts. Well, we're, we're getting to, I think, what's an interesting point um, in church history, and not just church history, but the history of the West, because we're, we've kind of gone through what some have called the uh, Dark Ages, <clears throat> I, I always like to point out to students, no one was living in the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, and, and they were like, you know, man, I hate living in the Dark Ages, or I hate living in the Middle Ages. <laughs> These are terms that are given later, and, and, and sometimes with a... Pejorative terms Yeah, sometimes. a fair amount of um, stereotyping and, and unfairness. And uh, Charlemagne will be an interesting figure because there's actually a lot of developments that will take place under Charlemagne. Um, he tries to uh, gather scholars around him. Uh, the foundations are laid for, you know, the later university system in Europe. Um, the later humanists who thought they were writing, uh, you know, with Cicero's Latin font 
were actually writing in, in Carolingian Latin, if I recall correctly. Um, I'm not a medievalist, but I've uh, taught Western Civ enough uh, to kind of get a kick out of some of those things that we take for granted as being Renaissance and humanist and things of this nature that really are owed to this period. Um, were the dark, would I, if I could pick an age to go back to, would I go back to the so-called Dark Ages? Probably not. You know, uh, it, uh, I like indoor plumbing. Um, Mike's on a cell phone now, at Wi-Fi, LTE, that's nice, unless you have Sprint like me, which <clears throat> doesn't work. Um, but maybe just good for us to step back and remember that as the West is going to kind of look north and uh, lose some of its ties with the East, it's not all barbarism. Now, that doesn't mean it's all, um, you know, uh, luxury and sophistication. The West is, is very much, or Western or Europe, I should say, is going to be very much behind much of the world when it comes to technology and sophistication and civilization, cosmopolitanism, stuff like that. Um, but there are some very important things happening, and many of them, to go back to our previous winging it session, are due to monasticism, the cathedrals out of which cathedral schools will grow, uh, and things of that nature. So I would just preface with saying we're not somehow plunging into some uh, armpit of history. Uh, and in fact, in many ways, these developments are as timely as ever. We, we've had some crossover with uh, Virtue in the Wasteland with um, with these winging it's, and not intentionally. But uh, they did a, a very good episode, I think, a while back on Charlemagne. And they did a very good job unpacking why Charlemagne is still very important today. I think they were maybe reviewing a Lightheart book about Charlemagne, but I could be wrong on that. <clears throat> but I would recommend uh, that as well if you want to check it out. We are part of the 1517 Network. That is a 1517 podcast. Um, but there is some crossover there. But I just point you that way because uh, we dare not think... 800 AD is a, a year we memorize in school for no reason. The, these things are going to have very lasting impacts, impacts that people don't realize at the time and maybe that they didn't even want. We'll get to whether or not Charlemagne really wanted that whole Christmas Day 800 AD thing to happen. But maybe, Mike, um, you've kind of been doing a great job of leading off with your initial impressions of the of the chapter. Um we are we're really getting kind of wedged between the ages of church history that I really have done my the most of my work in, um, but I uh, I had I one of my advisors who uh, I just loved dearly and was very good to me was a, a very well respected medievalist, and uh, one of my proud moments was in uh, in class he had given out some Latin thinking none of us knew much Latin yet, and uh, none of us would know what this thing was but he was talking about how to do archival work. And stuff like that, and I realized it was a, uh, it was a poem written by a Jesuit about a hermaphrodite, <laughs> and uh, and so I, I said to him after I said, uh, you know that's pretty, pretty good poem about a hermaphrodite, <laughs> and, he, and he laughed and got a kick out of that. But so I, I did, um, I very much respect him and enjoyed working with him, and so uh, I, what I what I have gleaned I have gleaned through uh, what he had me do an independent study and in, in some of my courses with him. Sure. So just maybe a little bit of historical perspective. It's not like uh, all of a sudden uh, the Pope and uh, this Frankish King Charlemagne say, hey, you know, it would be great. We should have kind of a little bit of a, um, a, t a little team here and uh, we can join forces. A, a lot of the even even the idea of a, of a Pope being the one. And this is significant. You know, a Pope saying, I 
I'm okaying this person as a secular ruler, and, and this is a huge deal, the secular and the sacred coming together, and then you come into what we call medieval synthesis, and uh, it's very hard to separate uh, secular things from the, from the sacred. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that, that, that is bad, especially when it ends up uh, mixing uh, the two kingdoms, which inevitably, I think, ends up mixing law and gospel. But there had been these uh, uh, power plays before, or I don't know how you want to describe them. Um, Charlemagne's grandfather, Charles Martel, the hammer, right? Charles the Hammer Martel, uh, the, the best nickname of all in the, in the history books. Um, he is the one who stopped the... Um, um, uh, Islamic invasion in, in what would be modern day France, correct? In Tours, he's the one that, that stopped. And really, that. I mean, a defining moment yep. for Europe that, uh, you know, until Luther's time, uh, you know, this very real threat of uh, Europe just falling to uh, Islamic advances, uh, you know, this this becomes, you know, an identifying thing for Europe, but also for the Carolingians, yeah. And I believe Charles Martel had, I don't know if he was crowned by a pope or something like that, if I correct that, and then his, uh, it would be Charlemagne's father, Pepin. Um, there was also some sort of kind of uh, agreement there. I, I wonder if the, he, Pepin was actually crowned by, by, um, by a pope or not. Anyway, um, it's certainly, it's not like this is, comes out of the blue at all. Um, and there are certain things that uh, the papacy needs. Um, the papacy has lands, um, is given lands sometimes by secular rulers. And if you have land, that means that you're into that left-handed kingdom. It means that you need an army, right, to defend yourself. And uh, uh, even still today, if you visit uh, um, a Vatican City, they don't look like the most fearsome of all fighters, uh, the Swiss Guard. Um, they're very colorful, um, but they're still a guard, right? Yeah. They're still there. And, uh, you know, sometimes we look back and say, how could you, how could we that ever get mixed up and how could that ever be and how could the church ever even want that and certainly there were some situations where there's power plays and 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 uh, uh, greed and uh, power hungry moves and stuff like that but when there's no other ruler right at times um, the church ended up being forced to be into that position and and it didn't work out very well of course but we're again as we look back in history we're very quick to judge in our cushy little world where we have a stable government yes, and we stable. Can, well, somewhat stable stable for history right oh historically and, yeah. extremely stable we, but we take it for granted yeah. yeah and we can you know buy a yeah. loaf of bread for not three hundred dollars that kind of stuff those so, Swiss guards just interrupt you know who that's going to be a big deal for eventually is uh, when Ulrich Zwingli and the, the um, Reformation in uh, Zurich gets underway, that's his initial big issue is Swiss mercenary service, and they got to cut that out. And he is going to have a very big church-state dynamic in play, too, where he wants to see kind of a, a wedded church and state as well. But sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, and so uh, in, fast forward to 800. Um, Charlemagne's in Rome. He is waiting to go back. Um, to to his home basically or to wherever he's going and is he having a, a pizza pie his, <laughs> he may he may have I don't think pizza was did pizza come to so that's a good question so I, I picture him he rode his Vespa <laughs> down to the restaurante to have a pizza pie and a uh, what's a nice wine you're the wine expert you've you you brought us the uh, 
the the wine episode. Right. Um, you know, I don't know. What, what would kind he of have? Wine. Him, I, don't, I don't know what kind of. I'm gonna say Merlot because I know that's a wine, <laughs> and he's gonna have himself a, a pizza and a Merlot, and then uh, you know he's gonna have get he's gonna walk down to the piazza, and you know what he's gonna get after that. Gelato. Is that how you say it? Gelato. I was I about so. to say gelatin. Yeah, well, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Gelato. So and there's gonna be pigeons, lots of pigeons. So pizza, as we know it, with a red tomato sauce. I believe tomatoes were imported from Is there South a America. Kind of tomato? No, but like you could have a white sauce or something. Because like a green that. tomato is an unripe tomato, right? Yeah. So when they had that movie, fried green tomatoes. But they were eating unripe tomatoes. I don't know. I think there's green tomatoes. I like don't know. grapes, there's. Yeah, maybe. But what I'm saying is that tomatoes were imported from South America. And so... Really? Yeah. So... You saw this online or you know this? No, I'm pretty sure this is true. And so the red sauce pizza that we know from Italy does not come, certainly not in 800. So anyway, he's hanging out Christmas time. So he's having ravioli or... Ravioli probably, yes. What is it? (laughs) Mustacholi? And he... uh, doesn't necessarily want to be uh, crowned by Leo the Third, correct? And so he's looking. Pastor Pastor Bordelin just joined us. Uh, we don't have a mic on for him yet for this winging it, but uh, John, there's uh, there's Carlo Vaco in uh, in that cooler, and uh, there's what Mike brought. What do you got? Stella, Stella. or something? Stella in this one. So help yourself. If you want to go Croatian or Belgian, whatever you want. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, but it seems that Pope Leo the Third is the driving force in this, and a big deal for him. He needs the he needs the political background. He probably needs. He needs the tomatoes. He needs tomatoes. Did you shift imported. gears? Or are we still on the tomatoes? We're not. We're off the tomatoes. Okay. He needs you probably. Really shifted there. He needs military might. Let's put it that way. And I think Charlemagne. It's not like Char- Charlemagne says, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I think he legitimately doesn't want it. He doesn't want those titles, those specific Roman titles like Augustus and stuff like that. But it's not like he said he, he refuses, right? I think he sees the advantage. Certainly later he uses those titles, and certainly later he used that power for his own benefit. And so it was a win-win politically for both of them um, starting in 800. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, both... I mean, that's what makes these things work, which sometimes, you know, you view it as a temporary compromise. And think about that today, even when, when developments happen in politics and, you know, people uh, come to terms on something. Sometimes what we think are very temporary agreements can become very lasting. I mean, we see that with both world wars even uh, in a number of ways. But um, the Pope does want security. He wants to be backed up. He, he wants legitimacy um, to say, you know, Rome is still here in the West, which had become a Byzantine claim. And... Uh, and Charlemagne does have some to gain, but you know the question is how much did Charlemagne want to be on the world scene, um, and that's kind of an interesting thing to think about as well. Um, what one of my the who is it Alcuin? Alcuin of York that writes the biography of Charlemagne is that who writes? No, it? that no he was the. Um, who writes the at the time? Einhard. Uh, I'm trying to Google it on my phone, but I got Sprint. Um, And I suck at Einhard. Who is it? Einhard. Uh, Einhard. Okay, so I had used that in uh, in class a lot. And it's just a uh, a fun biography to read. And, you know, besides the fact that when you get to the crowning of Charlemagne, they're trying to put all these, like, fine robes on him. And to him, these things are just very effeminate and weird. Like, why do you want me to wear these silky robes? You know, he's used to... Uh, 
dressing like a German would have that. And people oftentimes they hear Frankish Empire and Francia or Francia. Um, Aachen is in Germany, so if you want to go see, you know, uh, where Charlemagne was from, you're going to Germany. And uh, the way I oftentimes described it to my students was he was a, you know, he's drinking beers and shooting deers. <clears throat> and there's a, uh, you know, if they had four wheelers at that time, he probably would have had a, you know, Ford pickup, whatever. But there's this great story in Einhardt. Is that right now? Why am I thinking Alquin? Alquin is under Charlemagne, though, right? Charlemagne his, sponsors him his, as a scholar. It's his, yeah, kind okay. of his advisor. So I'm mixing this up in my head. I've been reading uh, too much uh, Byron Heyman lately. It has me all confused. But the, um, but uh, there's this great story. So Charlemagne goes out hunting, and there's like some, must be deer, moose, you know, whatever animal there was at the time there. Um, Probably not, not moose. I don't know if it was before or after the devil planted the dinosaur bones but some big animal <laughs> and uh the uh and Charlemagne goes to shoot this animal and it charges him and it like gores him <clears throat> so he but he kills the animal and then he goes home and like he has this thing where he goes into his wife and uh he like shows her the wound and she's like oh honey are you okay whatever and then he has like his uh his men bring in the huge horns that he got which is just like a total like you know up north wisconsin or michigan youper you're like player move like this is how you woo someone and then you you know get out some natty lights and whatever else but um the uh but i mean he was not what we would consider to be you know living in a big city um surrounded by you know finery um but he was he did sponsor scholarship <coughs> right so what what he saw as worthy as far as being a uh an inheritance from the West, right, was not universal because oftentimes you would have some in the North who wanted everything like Rome, especially early on after you have people invading Rome. Uh, he, he very much is a, um, to me, he seems like he would kind of be a populist type politician today. Not that he was, don't get me wrong, he was, this was not a democracy and he's not appealing to the people, but he definitely, um, you know, seems to, uh, have felt out of place in Rome, but appreciates and but appreciates schools. Appreciates, I think, you know, music and and all of those right. kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, very and, much. And lets Alcuin kind of do it, right? And wants them gathering documents, wants to uh, somewhat, uh, you know, codify language. How are we going to write? How are we going to do these things? Um, and so you're going to have this Carolingian Renaissance. Uh, which is going to be very important for what follows. And, and humanism really doesn't appreciate this. It kind of derides this period, um, but it owes a lot more to it than it realizes. And so, you know, there is stuff in there for Charlemagne, too. And, and, and so you can see in some ways, too, how Charlemagne can be a great ally of the church because what is the type of learning that he wants to help sponsor? Well, it's learning that's connected to the church that's been preserved through monasticism or through the learned who are most always connected to the church at this time. And... Uh, and so you do have um, somewhat of a win-win, <clears throat> although Charlemagne, to his credit, seemed to have understood he became somewhat number two in this relationship by letting the Pope crown him, which is why he wasn't necessarily gun-ho on this. And there's mm -hmm. some who speculate this was somewhat of a surprise that the Pope just comes out with this and voila, here's a crown and now I've crowned you, um, that it wasn't something Charlemagne necessarily wanted. There was a, a certain unhappiness, and that will linger through uh, the investiture controversy, which is just a great, you know, controversy too, um, all the way up until the time of Luther, where you, you have these secular rulers who are very leery of the standing they get 
by acknowledging some right of the Pope to put people, to invest people with, with uh, political power. Maybe, Mike, if you can just bring out from the chapter somewhat, um, you mentioned it earlier, but why is the Pope looking, why, why do the Carolingians, the Franks, um, become so important for the papacy? Now, you mentioned it, maybe unpack it just a little more. Sure. I, I think already the relationship between the East and the West and the Church is deteriorating. Um, it's going to come to a head in our next episode uh, with the Great Schism, but it's, it's always been there. Um, <clears throat> there's, uh, you know, obviously a power struggle, just any kind of power struggle is going to have that. But also uh, the Greek Church is making claims on certain lands and certain churches on the Italian peninsula. Um, you, you, you have those issues. Um, there's, there's hurt feelings and jealousies. You didn't back us up on this. You didn't, you didn't do this for us. And it is kind of nasty when you look back at it. Um, uh, it's it's not it's not the, the the best and the brightest moment of the uh, of the Christian Church, and yet you try it as a historian, put yourself back into that situation, and know why did this get so tense in the first place? You know, like when uh, we'll talk about this last time when they when they you know excommunicate each other, it just seems so petty. Um, but what were the tensions beyond that? So you have that. But that happens at almost every sure in every pastor circuit at some point. I mean, who hasn't pastors out there Bennett circuit and multiple guys excommunicate each other? <laughs> uh, I mean, it just comes up. Um, not only that, but I, something to maybe think about is just the geography of it too. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah, you can. It's a short short trip across the Adriatic, but you know, it's still a sea. Um, uh, heaven a sea, by the way, yeah. in which I have walked with yeah. Pastor Borland, who is yeah. now back here with us, and in which I saw many nude eighty-year-old uh, Germans. It's a, a different. A if it's a different world, Pastor, not... Pastor, you can shake your head if you remember <laughs> us taking a walk on the Adriatic, not realizing where we were going, and uh, I still sometimes can't sleep at night. Um, <laughs> it's it's a dip. Yeah, who wants to go through uh, you know modern day Croatia and stuff? It's a like different that? Adriatic it's a different now than it probably different. was then. I'm guessing. Um, but I don't know that uh, the Byzantine Church has. Um, as much political power. You know what I learned power. that people do as they age, though, Mike, if you were wondering? They wrinkle. Everything sags and wrinkles. Yeah. And I'm, I'm learning that personally now, too, but it, it just keeps going. All right, so... Do you think that's gravity? It, probably. Um, <laughs> oh, the Byzantine Church, that's what I was talking like about. Just like plants, they grow towards the sun. You know. I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, the Byzantine Church maybe doesn't have the same political power as maybe uh the roman church it doesn't it, it doesn't have a political power to pull off of as much as maybe the roman church does it and, is located in a greater political power but it, yeah it doesn't, it doesn't have the political uh collateral or yeah juice and yeah. so and so the leo the third is very eager to say okay there is this very powerful uh thing up north you know charles Martel, pepin and and then now charlemagne they beat Islam, you know, they, they defeated Islam. And you can't say that uh, for the East at that, at that point, maybe, uh, you know, a, a well, few times now. They've been sending them off pretty well. But if you yeah. want to see some interesting stuff, read about Greek fire. We still don't know what it was, but the, they had uh, around Constantinople just the stuff they would shoot at Turkish ships that would set them all on fire. So it's like constant awesome flamethrowers Constant battle, but you don't have the, the huge victory... Um, not necessarily, you know, a military victory, but in the minds of the people like right, yours. And just way more um, common boundaries they have to defend. 
And so you, you have a fairly, let's just say fairly stable um, Frankish kingdom. You have um, one single ruler um, in a fairly large area for the time. It makes sense politically um, for Leo to uh, lock arms with, with, with Charlemagne and also so that he can defend, help defend um, Italy, Spain, and Northern Europe uh, against uh, what's going to be an inevitable uh, Islamic invasion. But but also, you know, probably the timing for Leo III is important too. Let's not wait until Charlemagne gets too powerful. If the papacy can, if the papacy can, can gain a foothold by saying, okay, the papacy is a big deal. I'm doing you a favor, Charlemagne. And now you're going to do a favor for me. You know, let's say Charlemagne becomes big and the, and the papacy uh, uh, falters a little bit. He doesn't have that card to play anymore. And so I, I'm wondering if Leo III had, this is my moment. And if I don't let, if, when's the next time Charlemagne's going to come back to Rome? Right. He may come back. 10 times wealthier, 10 times more powerful, and I'm not going to have this moment. I'm, I'm wondering if that was his thought pattern. Well, and I think, you know, when we think about the Islamic conquest as well, and people don't understand this sometimes. Um, now, I'm not adv- advocating for the Crusades, but people will think of the Crusades, and they, they think of it as just purely Western aggression. And um, really, the West and the Crusades, its, it's big issue, issue was— uh, it was just indiscriminate, and it's killing when it won victory. I, when it takes Jerusalem, they just slaughter everyone because they can't tell the difference between a Christian, Jew, Muslim, whatever the case might be. But what they, what the Crusades originally were meant to do was to reopen pilgrim out, routes to the Holy Land um, and to try to liberate um, you know, Christian lands, formerly Christian lands. And so these, uh, while they were manipulated by those in power, certainly— we're seen not necessarily as wars of aggression always, but in many ways as, even as defensive wars. Now, Luther is going to have qualms with that later, and I think rightly so. But um, there's a, a Belgian historian, and I have to remember his first name, but I remember he was very important in uh, studying historiography for his, his contributions. Will you look that up. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the Crusades. Um, the Crusades well, are... Before I forget it, his name is Henry Perrin. I'll remember Perrin. Now we'll come back. The, the Crusades are neither the worst thing that the West has ever done, ever, 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 absolutely always wrong. Right. American nor, Idol was that. Right. <laughs> nor is it like the great... You know, maybe we shouldn't name our Lutheran school mascot the Crusaders. That you know, when, and I've coached yeah. Crusader teams. That's one that always surprises me because... Like Lutherans never had a high view of the Crusades, right, but no, right. yeah. yeah, the Crusades. But uh, it's it's a mixed bag. And, and Rodney Stark, I don't know what you think about Rodney Stark, um, sociologist who dabbles in history, wrote a book, uh, God's Battalions, and kind of makes the case that it's it was the Crusades were um, not as bad as we thought. He probably pushes it a little bit too more in, into the positive. Um, but but an interesting book uh, and a and a slim volume too. Anyway, you go ahead. No, but it, um, what Peren has uh, kind of talked about, his big thesis was that Islam essentially cut off um, Rome from uh, much of the, you know, the, its previous known world, what it associated with, so that it had no choice but to turn north. Now, there's been those who have challenged this thesis because we do know there was trade going on because we find um, coins from the Middle East and Europe, but what it appears at least some of that was, as more research has been done, is probably Europeans selling slaves. <clears throat> um, 
to the Middle East. But there is there's there is something to um, Islamic conquest, and then hard relationships with the East, and an East that is um, increasingly focused on its own outward threats. Because it's not only Islam; you have traditional enemies. Um, on the you know the the boundaries of the Byzantine Empire as well, and I don't want us to downplay the Byzantine Empire is still something spectacular mm-hmm. at this point, extremely powerful, maybe the superpower still of the day if we want to use those terms. Um, Constantinople, Constantinople would have planned a place to visit. Um, it was probably the seat of culture in the day, together with some um, Islamic centers, um, and uh, and so I don't want to downplay that. But it, it just had much more hostile boundaries. Uh, if, you're putting, is, if you're putting your finger to the wind, as I think Leo III did, things were coming up Frankish. You know, right. I, 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 I don't know if he was that wise. Well, but and it was Europe was the, really Central and Western Europe are the only places that still have the, um, you know, the luxury of fighting amongst themselves, <clears throat> at, except for Charles Martel, instead of having to really have an existential outward threat um, to face. And so I think, uh, what I want to get to a little bit, Mike, and then I don't know how long we've gone <coughs> so far. Mike just gave me fingers of the numbers instead minutes. of saying it because no one can hear this. Um, but, uh, and Pastor Borderland looks like he's itching to get on and record something in, in an episode here. So I don't want to keep him waiting too long. But uh, why don't you briefly give your take on the medieval synthesis, and then we can talk a little bit about its lasting importance. You know, I think that it it, it's, it really is foreign to us, right? I, we, we are able to compartmentalize that. Um, uh, I have a secular version of myself, and I have a religious version of myself. And if they meet once in a while, okay. Sometimes we kind of force it, you know, like... Uh, you know, I only I only go to the Christian, the Christian deli or something like that, um, which is equally problematic as only right. going to the secular. Yeah, right. So it, it's to see these two powers come together, and your education is going to be mixed. Art is going to be almost exclusively religious until you get into uh, Renaissance and and uh, uh, going back to uh, some of the Greek myths. Um, education is going to be tied with with uh, uh, religious studies. Um, any kind of higher learning is going to be uh, funded by the either funded by the church or is going to be funded by the secular uh, um, power and letting the church do it for the most yeah, part, yeah. or at least, at least they're going to have a huge say in it. Um, you know, military things are going to only be going to be done uh, if if there's a religious aspect. Everything's religious. And, and I think to a certain extent that's correct. Everything has to do with religion. Everything is owed to God. There is not one little bit that he does not know about and that he has not given us. And, and But uh, a very... As Lutherans, we, we start to see the seeds of a mixture of the two kingdoms and therefore a mixture of law and gospel. And you can already see this is going to be problematic. And um, uh, again, going back to that idea, it's easy for us to go back and say, why does the papacy need an army? Well, so so that Rome doesn't completely get destroyed. That's why there's yeah. no power there. And, and, and the papacy had secular responsibilities it had lands that the pope was called to protect you know and, and to protect his neighbor's body and life 
Yeah, and so it's 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 hard for us to to, to divorce that. Obviously, there's going to be greed that comes in and simony and all and all the rest. And you want a pope to say, no, 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 no. This is not. I shouldn't be in in charge of this. But it's not like the pope's saying, I totally trust the secular realm to take care of this. Um, and there's a, an element of mutual distrust. Oh. And, you know, there's almost like checks and balances built in it of it. You know, of we each know each other is going to have designs or aims. You know, and, and I think for a lot, the time in history, what was going to be the better situation? Uh, and I think uh, maybe a lot of it's the devil you know, too. And uh, this is going to deteriorate, of course. You know, in, in uh, uh, Luther's day, you're going to have uh, the king of France at times making deals with the Turks because he doesn't like the Pope and, and it just gets really, it gets just really, really messy. And so uh, Luther's going to break that apart, of course, with the two kingdoms. Um, and yet it's not a separation of church and state like we think about right, today. Exactly, it's important. just not, it's just not, I don't even know if he would have thought of that concept. No. And I don't think that he would have approved of that concept in the way we, Jefferson, you know, not Jefferson would no. have thought about it. That is an enlightenment concept. Um, so uh, actually, I, I think a lot of Barack Obama, when he had his uh, his pastor in Chicago, uh, the the Reverend Wright, uh, you know, some video came up of him saying something that was uh, racist against white people, and he could have bailed on him, but he didn't, and he said, you know, I can't. I can't divorce this. It's it's part of who I am, and I thought that was actually pretty honest and pretty pretty profound. What he said, I can't. I can, I can... You know who can divorce things? I'm not, not going to make fun of our okay. president. I'm sorry, go I, ahead. I, um, <laughs> uh, at, some po- at one point, I know there's a difference between the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom, and to mix the two is a devil's stew, and you're in- and inevitably mix law and gospel. The church should not be doing the state's business and, and vice versa. But, but you never live outside of or I, experience... I, either exclusively right and there's no way that when i vote i go well now i'm voting as an american not as a lutheran um that that just you just can't do that and so it is messy and uh the medieval synthesis was was i think something that certainly turned out very poorly in many circumstances um but you could see how it's natural in a lot of ways well and i think this is an important thing to remember is Almost everywhere in history in the world, this type of synthesis develops at some point, if not a full synthesis, at least a you know very close relationship. Um, is Confucianism a philosophy or a religion? Well, it's probably more of a philosophy, but you know what? It, it sure uh, can can kind of butt up against things as both. Um, you see this in Islam with Sharia law. You see this in Christianity. Shoot, Judaism was rooted in in this type of thinking. Um, I mean animistic religions this is this shaman is a has political power this is always just part of it and so uh what i think is helpful for us to remember is that um i guess in two ways a um this wasn't something that as mike said was unnatural this is something that grew out of its context but B, to remember, this is not something that doesn't still affect us today. In fact, um, we see it on both sides of the aisle today where religion will be brought in where, where it's convenient and politics will be brought in where it's convenient. And sometimes it's very hard to distinguish between the two. 
And in some ways that's good because, it, as Mike said, it ought to be hard to distinguish between the two because it's not a clean separation, and Luther didn't teach a clean separation as we sometimes think. But uh, I think we see this with Constantine also. It can be expedient at the time for the church to want to lean on the state to help the church accomplish the church's goals. But in the long term, it's not always the most beneficial thing for the preaching of the gospel. It can also be convenient and expedient for the state sometimes to lean on the church to help the state accomplish the state's goals. But in the end, it's not always best for the state. And it can do great harm to the church. And I think a fun set, not fun, like, I mean, it's on a morbid topic, but when we really get to Bonhoeffer and Sasa and Nazism, we're going to see where things really come to a head. And a lot of times people will look at that point in history and say, see, this is why World War One and Two. this is why existentialism is born, um, religions caused all these, you know, problems, whatever. And I think it's kind of interesting and helpful to step back and say, um, maybe the reverse of the medieval synthesis, maybe... Um, Well, we'll get to it, but but maybe that was partly in play. And so you're going to have this relationship that people still haven't figured out. How am I religious? How am I religious and political? How am I in the church and in the state? And I don't care if someone's in an athe- is an atheist; they're still in church and state. You know, they still are a person um, who is body and soul, who has views that are not purely um, empirical, political, or economical which inform their views of their life with their neighbor. And so for all the harm it maybe did later, and as much as Luther and others rightly came down on it, I do think there is a lot to uh, some people just trying to say, let's try to have some order. Mm -hmm. Let's try to, you know, um, have some stability. Let's uh, try to preserve what learning we can. And so I think to be fair to the period, do I um, do I think art has been better since we've lost the synthesis? Probably not. You know, I think there was something to people not being able to divorce the secular and the spiritual nearly so easy. Um, I think you you saw an emphasis on harmony, coherence, um, forced to transcendence. Think of, forced to think about big questions where I don't think we are in a secular right and I mean there's there was no you know Cardi B and Kanye in the Middle Ages um were they held back somewhat too I think yes you know but um but what I think you have is you have a papacy that is really the last vestiges of this high point of western culture at that point and then you've got Charlemagne who you know wants to be out on his pole Polaris or whatever the brand is for four-wheeler and wants to get a 30-point buck and, you know, uh, I don't have a Blatz, whatever. And um, But at the same time, he gets like, I want smart people and I want good learning and I want good religion. And and so you, you see trying to find this middle ground. And perhaps it's, you know, one of the most European moments there's ever been. Um, and in many ways, all of Europe from that day and then the West, you know, as it comes to America, really grows out of this, of these very human concerns, desires, hopes, realizing um, they all butt up against a lot of different things. And if we're going to achieve them, we're going to need 
to have people who have um, both religious and political uh, coherence, stability, uh, not necessarily freedom necessarily yet, but but that people need both these things and we need to figure out a way to have both these things work together, if that makes sense. I'll let you close it. But I mean, to me, it is an acknowledgement of what it's to be human. Yeah, I, I think you're right on there. And and then what's going to develop up until we get uh, to to time of the Renaissance and Reformation is a is a very organized life. Uh, you know, there's going to be the sacramental life of the seven sacraments that that develop in the in the in the Roman Catholic Church from birth till death. Um, everything's going to be very ordered. You know, it's going to take a while, of course, and it's not always the situation everywhere. Um, but it's going to be very ordered, and it's going to, and, and there's going to be these powers, uh, a secular and a religious power, that often seem like one power uh, in, I, in a lot of people's minds, I would imagine, although certainly there's going to be all sorts of uh, political things going on above above uh, the pay grade of the, the average peasant and stuff like that. So uh, next time we're going to get to the Great Schism, and then eventually we're going to get to where this all comes to a head, and that would be the Diet of Is it Schism or is it Schism? Schism, Schism, whatever you want. You're the one that doesn't like people criticizing your Latin pronunciation. Yeah. No, I, I, I yeah. like what you said, because I say Schism. We'll figure it out. I, okay. I will Google that before we get and to the next time. Do one time. of those YouTube pronunciation videos. There you go. There's like a 13-year-old girl who makes those, <laughs> and I pretty much, she's now the expert on pronunciation. That, for excellent. Me. All right. Uh, so we'll get back to, we'll, we're going to uh, come back at 1054, and then we're going to jump ahead uh, to the 1500s. Until then, let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get my body and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down. I don't care what the people are thinking, I'm not drunk.